1: Home is really where the people you are closest to are. And so I have seen my parents pack up and move to places where really, you know, the move was motivated because they had a sibling that was there or they're moving you know, closer to parents. I think they have modeled a real ability to adapt when it comes to physical space and that I think has sort of disabused me of this idea that home has to be attached with a particular plot of land.
2: Today on Lit Up, I'm speaking with the Palestinian-American poet, author, and clinical psychologist Hala Aleyan. Her first novel, Salt House, won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, which recognises the power of the written word to promote peace. She's also the author of four poetry collections and has been published all over from The New Yorker to The New York Times Book Review— Now today we are going to talk most specifically about her new novel, The Arsena City, which centres around the boisterous Nasser family who have been summoned to their ancestral home in Beirut during one summer in the wake of their patriarch's death. Hala, welcome to Lit Up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I don't want you to be offended by this comment. When I first started reading The Arsonist City, the NASA family did remind me of a little of the show Dynasty about that rich kind of dysfunctional. That's so funny. Oh, good. <laughs> that kind of in my mind, you know, when you have a memory kind of from the 80s of being a kid mm-hmm. of those looks like kind of glamorous staircases and secrets That's hilarious. Um, and these very dramatic family that are all very much bonded to one another can you tell us about a who these two parents are and then a little bit about their kind of the cast of characters of these children that they have
1: yeah, of course. So, I mean, the story is sort of told in two timelines woven together. One takes place in the 70, 60s and 70s in Damascus as a young woman named Mesna comes of age. And her, her one hope and dream and fantasy in life is to move to Hollywood and become an actor. And then in the 70s, she's sort of entering her late teens, early 20s. She meets a Lebanese man and a Palestinian man and sort of starts spending more time in Lebanon, which at that point is has erupted in civil war and sort of kind of goes back and forth between Lebanon and Syria. And Idris, who is the Lebanese man that she ends up marrying reluctantly, a couple like a after, is a medical student, is somebody that's looking to do residency and actually ends up Finding a job in a small desert town in California, which ends up being what kind of the thing that clinches the deal for Mesna in terms of agreeing to marry him because she thinks that's going to bring her closer to Hollywood and to these dreams of being an actor and, and things do not turn out that way. And then, so there, so that's sort of the back, that's kind of the story told in the past is sort of their lives, her kind of adjusting to this, the disappointment of sort of like an immigrant's wife, not getting to fulfill any of the dreams that she'd had for herself, having some children, I think being really conflicted and sort of ambivalent about motherhood. And then the present day story is her and Idris take essentially gathering their now adult, their three adult children in Beirut to try to stop the father from selling their ancestral home.
2: And I'd love to talk about Beirut specifically and Mm -hmm. your connection to that city. When was the first time you went back
1: to Beirut? So we, I spent the first few years of my life in Kuwait and then Saddam invaded and then we, my parents sought asylum in the States. We lived in the States kind of bopping around different cities until I was 12, at which point we moved to the United Arab Emirates for a year. But that summer before that move was the first time that I went to Lebanon, went to Beirut. My grandparents have, had a house in a small village called Masrat Yeshua, And so we went and spent the summer there. And then after spending one year in the Emirates, essentially moved to Lebanon. And so I spent my high school years in Tripoli And then in a small town called Bramana in the mountains. And then I did my undergrad at the American University of Beirut and lived in Beirut proper for four years.
2: Hala, it sounds like you moved around so much during your childhood. And I'm wondering, is that because each time you were seeking asylum or was it because of your parents'
1: work? Kind of neither. I mean, so the asylum, there was one main asylum move, which was from the Middle East to um, the States when I was about four after the invasion, after the Saddam invasion. And then we were able to, my parents were able to secure paperwork and everything. And we lived in Oklahoma and Texas and Maine. And the move, the moving within the States was really more motivated by kind of upward, upward mobility. My parents lost everything after the invasion and kind of had to start all over again. And so my father and my mother were, were getting degrees. And then with those degrees, we're able to kind of secure gradually better and better jobs. And then that was also what motivated kind of the move back to the Middle East was both in terms of securing better financial opportunities and better employment opportunities. And also, I think they really wanted to move us back to the Middle East for just like cultural reasons, like being able to be around family, all of that stuff.
2: In the Asana City, you explore this theme of what happens when parents and children kind of split in their experience Mm. of home. Why was it so important to explore that in this book?
1: I think kind of selfishly, those are things that I I work through myself as the daughter of immigrants. Like you pointed out, we moved around a lot. So we, we, we don't have a traditional immigration story. I technically was born in the States, but just for the first couple of weeks of my life. So I got the privilege of the passport, but then kind of had the experience of immigrating because at four, I had really only known Kuwait as a home. And then we're here for, for a handful of years and then moved back. And so and so I'm really interested in what that does to a family across, across its lineage. Like, what does it do to the understanding of where do you feel safe? What do you associate with home? Where do you want to, quote unquote, return to? I hear a lot of people in my generation talk about kind of like the longing for something, but it's really it's like kind of intangible and hard to pinpoint. So you're like, you're like, I'm longing for Beirut. And then you go to Beirut and you're like, I don't know what I'm longing for. I'm longing for something. I just know it's not, here, you know? And I think that that kind of ethereal, impossible to pin down feeling has a lot to do with just like these concepts of home or stability being really, they're really just, they're kind of words for, for a lot of us.
2: Do your parents have a sense of where home is for them still? Is it a specific place?
1: That's a really good question. I, my guess is my mom would probably say Beirut. It feels like home. But I think both of them, certainly my father, have modeled for me and my siblings this idea that home is really where the people you are closest to are. And so I have seen my parents pack up and move to places where really, you know, the move was motivated because they had a sibling that was there or they're moving, you know, closer to parents. I think they have modeled a real ability to adapt when it comes to physical space that I think has sort of disabused me and my siblings of this idea that home has to be attached with a particular plot of land.
2: What's it like having them around so much now?
1: It's so nice. I love, I mean, I have, I've lived in a different country from my parents, not city, different country since I was 18. So I haven't, we have not lived in the same part of the world in so long. Um, It's been great. I mean, we haven't, because of quarantine and all of that, we, I have spent, you know, a few weeks with them total over the past year that has been pre- like, you know, preceded by super hardcore lockdown. Don't leave the house for two weeks because I obviously don't want to infect them. Um, but because of the sort of logistics of being able to do that, we've only done it a couple of times. I did it over the holidays and did it over the summer for a couple of weeks. It's been, but even just the fact that like when the weather is a little bit more manageable to be able to have the family come and hang out in our backyard, you know, and be like socially distant, just be able to see them to be in the same time zone. Like I've, I hadn't realized how huge that was. I'm so used to being like, Oh, I got to get them before like one o'clock cause they'll be asleep. You know, like there's, I have like a, a sliver of time every day if I need to like text them for something or ask a question. Um, and to just be kind of in the same general vicinity has been, it's been really nice.
2: Masna, the the mother in the novel, she just captures, your heart and imagination Mm. so much when you're reading it. She is Syrian and the father, Idris, is Lebanese. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to have these two people
1: connect from different places within the Middle East? The the plot that takes place in the past are Palestinian, Lebanese, and Syrian. And those three countries, which are, you know, kind of people call it like the Levant, like are, are... three nations and communities and people that are very closely linked, both in terms of proximity and in terms of like culture and norms and accents and all these different things within within the larger community of like Arabic speaking nations. And so I it felt that because of the ways that these three nations are so interconnected and also have really charged histories and relationships, it felt really interesting to be able to kind of get a peek into that through these people who are not particularly political themselves, like are not, or I mean, I guess what what is political? I think everyone sometimes just having a certain existence is political, but meaning that like, you know, these are Mesna in particular, I think is somebody who kind of enters the world of Lebanon and the civil war and whatnot, not really knowing very much about the political background and not really kind of like, you know, especially in the first part of the book, is seems quite confused as to why this is happening. And there's a lot of conversations that uh, that sort of center around her not being really sure why the violence is happening mm-hmm. and kind of needing that to be unpacked for her a little bit. And so I think it felt appealing to me to be able to have characters that came from different countries and different backgrounds, because it allowed for me to then really think about and unpack the relationship of these different places to each other. You know, what is the connection between Syria and Lebanon? These are two countries that are very super, super interconnected. I mean, when, when the violence in Syria happened, the spillover effect into Lebanon was really immediate and, and, and felt quite starkly and still is. And and the reverse was certainly true during the Civil War in 75 to 90. So it's, I think that that it allowed for a larger kind of sociopolitical look at the region that would have been limited if it were like, you know, all three of them were Lebanese.
2: Mm -hmm. My sense is that it's very important when you describe yourself as Palestinian-American, and that identity is... Get critical to who you are, what you write about, and what's important to you. Could you talk about that a little bit and what it's like kind of identifying yourself with that hybrid? You know, every time you're being introduced, someone Mm -hmm. says, you know, Hala, Palestinian American. And is that loaded for you?
1: And how do you walk through the world with that identity? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like an identity that means like it doesn't have some universal agreed upon meaning. Like it's kind of, you know, you put that in your bio once and that's going to forever be the thing <laughs> that will associate with you. I th- I think it's sort of, it feels to me like a, a placeholder that I use because actually I think of my identity as I think most people think of their identity as being a much more complex inter, I think it's a lot more nuanced than Palestinian American. I am... Palestinian by origin but I'm also Syrian by my grandma my paternal grandmother was Syrian and she you know was one of the biggest influences in my life and certainly was an active part in raising me and so that lineage certainly feels strong to me I lived in Lebanon for 8 years and then continued to visit for months every year for you know the following decade so Lebanon and Beirut certainly feel like they're part of my identity even though that it, you know, it's a place where to be Palestinian and to be really attached to Lebanon are, are complicated things because a lot of people in Lebanon have a complicated relationship to Palestine and Palestinians because of the Civil War. But then again, also I, you know, I came of age here in a lot of ways. I was here in, you know, elementary school, the first half of middle school. I moved back for graduate school. This is where I married. This is where I bought a house. This is where I've, for all intents and purposes, set up my career and my life and So I feel like I belong to a lot of places and a lot of identities and a lot of identities belong to me. I think we don't have, in general, I think we don't have like a great vocabulary to capture the nuances of different identity markers. And so I think people like, you just got to summarize it in a way that's digestible for folks. And I think that's what often happens.
2: So many generations of Americans, Australians, English have lived through a period without war or... if you are lucky, without much hardship. In contrast to their parents, particularly in your novel, that we learn have experienced so much trauma because of war. There's also, at the core of your book, the family secrets that come out, often Mm. when there has been traumas of some kind and to protect certain members of the family. You're a clinical psychologist, and I'm wondering if you think there are ever family secrets that should be kept secret.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a great question. I mean, I think secrets secrets and why we keep them is very much like at the core of the book, and it's definitely one of the themes of the book. And I am really curious about the function of secrets, particularly in like family systems and systems with people that we're close to, like, you know, we tend to hide things like we tend to hide things from the people that we are the most that like where the stakes are the highest, you know? So I think the reason we keep secrets also is very, it's something that I'm interested in just as a concept. So it was fun to play with that in the context of this family that is in some ways really enmeshed and in other ways really disconnected from each other because they're so far flung across the world. I do think that there you know, there's a line in the book. I don't remember, I'm going to butcher it, but it's it says when one of the characters essentially says something like people are owed their secrets, people deserve them. And I do agree with that. I think that I'm sort of of two minds about it because I think not having access to the truth is a kind of harm. And so there is something to be said for hiding something essential about a family system that does affect an identity that you personally have, which we certainly see in this book. There is a secret that's kept that is really crucial, I think, for someone's understanding of themselves in the later generation. But at the same time, I do think that you know sometimes the secret we we tend to keep secrets as a form of survival you know, unless you're someone that's really like just kind of manipulative like most people don't keep secrets for fun they keep them because the alternative feels unimaginable or it feels like something could really be like a lot could be lost in 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 the revealing of it. And so I, I think that there's I think I'm of two minds about it. I think people are both owed their secrets and they're also owed the truth and I don't know how. I'm not sure how that needs to be navigated. You know, I don't know how people make that decision. I think I think the people I think the person with the secret has a lot of power at the end of the day and they get to decide what's shared and what's not. And when you have that dynamic anywhere in any kind of system, it's you know, it's it's a tricky one because people are not there there becomes an immediate hierarchy that gets put in place.
2: The father character in your book Idris is a heart transplant surgeon and every time he takes a heart out of one body and is about to put it into another, he talks to his hearts and says along the lines of thank you for Mm. your work for that other person, please be good to this new human and I thought it was so touching But on one day, one of the hearts talks back to Mm -hmm. him. And what does that heart say? And what was the significance of having the father be this kind of man who's Mm -hmm. willing
1: to listen and talk to hearts? I think he's a deeply sentimental man, kind of superstitious. and, And for all the mistakes that he makes throughout the course of the book and the course of the story, I think he is someone who really, I mean, so to speak, his heart really is in the right place. He is somebody that loves fiercely and is willing to really put everything on the line for those things. And I think having him be somebody that listens and talks to hearts is, I think it really goes hand in hand with, with his personality, which is someone who I think really believes in the supernatural and really believes that. If you, if you come into something with the right intention and with the right amount of belief and faith and gratitude that things will work out. And, and in some ways that I think is that same belief turned up like to a hundred, which we see in his marriage can be toxic, right? So we see that same kind of like fervent, like, I'll never. I'll never stop trying. I'm going to make everything work. And you see that in terms of him and Mesna and it actually really, I think, backfires. So it's interesting to, I think, to see that trait in his be both like a real asset and a kind of a beautiful thing in a healing setting, and then also see the ways that it also, I think, leaves him holding on to things that he would probably be better served letting go of. I want to
2: share a story because as I read your book, this reminded me of a documentary I'd seen with my mother Mm. probably 20 years ago and it was about a heart surgeon who or a a kind of a, a university hospital in Scotland and they were doing research on Transplant recipients, transplant heart mm. recipients, and about how certain behaviors in the recipient might change. Interesting. So this idea of inheriting an organ—how right. would it change the, right, right, the right, recipient? Right, right. And in this one case, this miner who had been a burly man his mm. whole life received a heart, and he started writing love poetry to his wife. Oh my god! And but beautiful poetry and he'd go to the pub and kind of start, you know, reading his poems and Mm. things. And they found out that the person whose heart he'd received was also a poet. Oh my gosh. And that this shift may have obviously happened with this experience he'd had. But it just made me think of, you know, when you want to be changed – yeah. Sometimes you can. Yes,
1: be. totally. I mean, it's, it. it can also be said that this person's like was open to having, you know, his heart changed, right? Like not just like in terms of literally, and it could be, I definitely don't know the science. I'm look, I'm a believer. I'm someone that's like, I want magic to be real. So I'm, you've already got me. I'm into it. Yeah. It was the heart. I love it. <laughs> but I think even if we were to to sort of be like, well, maybe it's not the heart. It's more that like he had this life transforming event because I imagine to get a heart transplant, you have, your health has to be pretty in, threatened and endangered that that you you shift when you're ready to shift, right? You shift when you're like, well, I think a lot of times we we change reluctantly as people and we change when our backs are really against the wall. And so there's something really beautiful about it, either being, I think it's equally beautiful if that shift in this person happened Because he inherited a poet's heart, or because he saw that time is limited and life is fleeting, and that also caused him to kind of have a change in perspective. I think those are both equally poignant.
2: Well, and I think bringing it back to your novel, there are things that historically shift and change people's lives, aren't there? Death, marriage, grief, and there's an incredible line that you mention that speaks. Directly to how certain things in our lives can change us, and it is grief will make you do crazy things. Mm. And I just love the simplicity of that. Yeah. Why did you want to explore what grief specifically does to people and how it changes their psychology mm-hmm. in that you know period of time? Yeah. Afterwards,
1: I was kind of writing the story and chugging along and and knew that one of the characters had to face immense grief, had to experience a loss that was going to really reverberate throughout her life. And in the face of that, really, you know, kind of had to ask myself the question of like, what would what would this sort of totally unexpected, really irretrievable kind of loss do to a person? And the reality is that, you know, really intense loss makes us do things that may like, leave us unrecognizable to ourselves. And- you know, your, your long-term planning and like ability to kind of take a step back and have cool, rational judgment becomes super compromised because you're inundated with all these, you know, cortisol and stress hormones. And also you're just, you know, you're, you're in a trauma response, which I think this character is in at the time. And I think it just, it creates, it creates the condition to do things that to the outside world seem completely unhinged almost. And I think that, you know, I think in some ways like that moment of grief is really what sets the whole book into motion. Like this woman's moment of grief, Mazna's moment of grief in terms of the loss that she faces in that moment has repercussions that like, you know, totally seep into the future generations. Like it completely changes the trajectory of her life. It has her agree to a decision that, and agree to a move and sort of a life shift that completely changes the, you know, the the kind of upbringing and existence that her children have.
2: You mentioned just now that a person experiences a physiological response to grief. How long does that period last? And say Mm. you had a patient, what advice would you give them about, A, being like kind to themselves, but also waiting till you make these life-shifting decisions?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really tricky because a lot of times trauma, it's not like life waits for your grief to pass, right? Like it's not like, you know, I mean, I think the pandemic was a really good example of that. People still got divorced during the pandemic. They still had miscarriages. They still experienced the death of people that they loved. sometimes not related to COVID. It's not like, like those things got put on hold because we had a larger global thing that we all had to deal with or hunker down around. And I think the same thing is true for more like, you know, granular traumas or losses. Like I think a lot of times actually we're asked to make big decisions in moments of loss or trauma. You know, like you you, you lose somebody and you have to then figure out what the funeral arrangements are going to be. How are you gonna tell people what are the next steps? What are you gonna do with their house, their belonging, their like it's 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 kind of unfortunate, but a lot of times there is a lot of decision making that's attached with moments of grief and loss that are not kind of not negotiable. So I think as a as a therapist and as a person, I, you know, I think I. I think it's really important to remember this idea of situational best. I think one of the most harmful things we do to ourselves and the ways that we make ourselves suffer the most is we try to evaluate our functioning in moments of hardship according to a metric that ex- that that we establish during moments of ease, right? So I'll be like am I doing really well right now? And what am I using to measure that? If I'm having a really hard moment or day or month, I'm usually using what what, what makes me usually seem productive, like my regular metric of like functioning. And that I think ends up being so heart-wrenching because it's like you have to adapt, you have to adjust it. You've got to tweak those expectations of yourself when you're experiencing something traumatic or something grief-stricken. And so it's like, okay, let's say on an average, you know, baseline day, you know, I want to write for, I'll use myself as an example, like if I write for 30 minutes a day and I do all my work and I shower and I sleep at a reasonable time and I have three meals and I go for like a jog, I've had a successful day. If I'm in the midst of something traumatic or really, you know, sorrowful, I've got to adjust that. I've got to think of like, am I doing my situational best right now? And that situational best might be, did I get out of bed and did I shower? You know, did I do the calls I absolutely had to do? Guess what? I didn't write today. Guess what? I'm not going to be able to go for a jog today. Guess what? I only ate like one meal late at night. That's fine. Like, I think really like figuring out how to adapt to our circumstances is really, I mean, it's, it, it that in and of itself can be the biggest kindness you can do is just really asking yourself, like, am I being fair in terms of what my expectations are right now?
2: Hmm. You just mentioned that writing for thirty minutes a day right. would be kind of optimal. Yes, and I did hear you speak, and you said that you only write yeah. for about thirty minutes a day, and that you keep writing as, almost like that scoop of ice cream right. you get. Right, 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 After doing life, I love that. Yeah, um, yeah,
1: it's a great Yeah, is I mean, that
2: still the it's process. It's still it. Yeah, it's still
1: thirty minutes a day it's just it's what I've what I've gotten into the habit of I could definitely up it to an hour I could definitely be doing more but but it's just you know it's what I've it's what I've gotten in the rhythm of and it's it feels like it's asking a reasonable amount of myself like it's really not overloading me to do 30 minutes a day again unless I'm having a particularly hard day in which case I gotta sacrifice it but yeah I, I still do the kind of half hour cut it at 30 try to leave it at some sort of cliffhanger, try to leave what you're writing at like a point that you're sort of excited about to return to the next day. It's a lot of just tricking myself, which I think is what a lot of writing is.
2: And can you talk about how you manage that in
1: relation to your psychology work? Like, are you seeing patients every day? (gasps) Um, This semester, I'm teaching an advanced poetry workshop for undergrads at NYU. And I'm teaching a ethics in psychotherapy class for graduate students in psychology. So I usually teach one class in psych and one class in, in creative writing, which I love. I love that combination. And they're both at NYU and I work part-time at the counseling center at NYU with the Islamic center in particular. So I work with students that are funneled through our program and identify as Muslim and are looking for a Muslim identified clinician, which is a great gig. And I really love working with the IC and then i have a small private practice but for the most part it's about a day and a half of private practice clients who most of which are folks that you know are either arab immigrants children of arab immigrants third culture kids there's a lot of yeah a lot of most people are are poc in some sort of way or another gosh you're busy and can you know it's 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 there's it it's more that i do a lot of things, but I'm not doing a lot of any of them. So it's, do you know what I mean? So it's, it sounds like a really wild schedule, but I also, you know, I woke up at like 9 45 this morning. So like, I, it's fine. I'm fine.
2: As a therapist, I think we could all use some advice on how to be gentle with ourselves in this collective moment. Yeah. And obviously many different individual groups have so many things they're they're grappling with Mm. and I'm sure for I know I I the thought of not being able to go home that home is wherever my parents are they could be in Timbuktu and I'd be like oh I have to go home and how you're helping
1: the people you talk to manage with the unknown at the moment? I do. I find meditation to be really helpful for me personally. And so I listen to meditation talks and will like join kind of events and things like that. And one of the things that's been spoken about a fair amount in meditation circles is that there's no new amount of uncertainty. This has always been the level of uncertainty. It's just been, it's just really laminated right now. It's hard to not look at, but most of the time we operate as though our lives are pretty certain, as though when I leave the house, I'm not going to get run over by a motorcyclist, as though when I go order my bagel, they're not going to have run out of the poppy. You know what I mean? Like the we operate as though things will work, a lot of us. And I think you kind of have to, because it's also, you know, it, it, there's sort of a dialectical need to both hold uncertainty and then also kind of Assume things will be okay unless they prove otherwise and then deal with them because we also can't spend every second of the day being like, but I don't know. I don't know. That becomes its own kind of anxiety. And I think that the pandemic to the to that point is is just been a moment where it's been highlighted globally how we don't know. It's just most of the time we don't have to look at it 24-7. But this was always true. This has always been the reality, right? And so I think. Reminding myself of that, reminding clients of that, reminding friends of that, like I I find that to be kind of an an effective way to help people's like nervous system start to calm down is that actually this is this level of not knowing is always been the case. It's just been our awareness of it that's fluctuated. And when people start to really resonate with that, it does kind of like it brings the anxiety down a little bit. I think the other thing that I like to talk with people is again, the, the situational best is like something I'm constantly bringing up in sessions and then also kind of like you know what like I think of self-care I really love the Audrey Lord idea and definition of self-care is like it's a form of self-preservation which is an act of warfare like it's like this is this is survival like self-care is not it's sort of been, there's been a commodification and like kind of an Instagramification of like a lot of wellness concepts. So they're just kind of used and reused and reposted and like memefied in ways that don't really mean anything anymore. But at its core, self-care is, in my in my definition, is doing things that remind you of yourself. Like doing things after which you go like, Oh my God, that's right. Hala, I've missed you. Like, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. I forgot that that was something that brought me back to myself. So, it's, I think of self care as like ways that we can tug ourselves back to ourselves a little bit. And I think those are, you know, every, it's there, it, there's a lot of privilege in being able to attend to the self. I think it's something we don't talk about enough that, like, it's a position of privilege to say, I'm going to take care of myself. I think a lot of people, if you are, Barely keeping your head above water, and you have like, you know, a bunch of kids to feed, or you are supporting your parents, or you're trying to figure out how to like survive in this country undocumented and with all these different stressors, or with medical bills, or whatever. The idea of let me spend some time with myself or remind myself of myself feels so like such a luxury that you may not have the time or the energy for. And so I think it's really. I think it's really powerful to be realistic with yourself about what you can afford, not just financially, but in terms of resources. Like, do you have five or 10 minutes in the day, even if you are incredibly busy and incredibly overextended and a lot of people count on, do you have five or 10 minutes a day to take a walk outside, to read something that you enjoy, to sit down and journal, to call somebody that makes you smile, to watch a show, whatever? Like, can you carve out little bits of time? And I think oftentimes, regardless of how, you know, what a person's circumstances are, they can usually find little pockets of time in the day. And so I'm less about we need to restructure our lives to have massive swaths of time to like, you know, everyone needs to go on a silent retreat for two weeks or it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. that's not realistic. Like just pockets of ease. Can you cultivate pockets of ease in your days and your weeks? And that makes a huge difference.
2: My goodness. Just hearing you speak, my heart rate is just low. Oh my God. It's like this nice, steady <laughs> oh, thump. That makes me happy. So calming. And just that beautiful idea of reminding yourself of who you yeah. are. That's something that's so fresh. And yet, you know, instant when you said that, yeah. I was like, oh, I know when that happens. It's been it's been so much less lately. Mm. Where is she? How can I
1: find her again? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think the best thing that like the best indicator of the future is usually the past. So it's like, where have you found her in the past is usually like a good, you know, starting point of like, where can you start that treasure hunt? It's like, where has it, where has she usually lived, you know, in the, in, in, in before? I think that can be a place to start. My last question for you is: What lights you up? Ooh, such a good question! I love that. Writing, reading a really good book, movement. I've been really stationary lately, and I really mi- that's something I, I definitely talk about. Like you know, reminding you of yourself. Like I miss that. I miss dancing. I miss jogging. I miss being outside. I think coming across an idea. That feels like it puts to language something I've known to be true, but haven't been able to find the vocabulary for really lights me up. I know that's really specific, but I've, you know, I'll experience that sometimes in conversations with clients where I learn so much or conversations with students or listening to a meditation talk or just like kind of shooting the shit with like, you know, my partner or fam- you know family member or whatever, where like just reading or hearing something where I'm like, oh my God, yes, like there, that's so universal. That person was able to articulate something that is so true to the human experience. I find I get really excited about that. I also like vegan donuts a lot. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hala. You're so welcome. Thank you for this. This was delightful.
2: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Hala Alayan. Her book, The Arsena City, can be purchased via the link on our website, lituppodcast.com. And you can find more about Hala's work at halaalayan.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time. Bye, everyone.